Greetings. I'm Raman Chada, founder of the Junto Institute. Welcome to Flourishing Together, where we have inspiring conversations with people who are becoming infinitely better at who they are and what they do. On today's episode, we have two more special people. Kathy Steele, founder and CEO of Red Caffeine and a Junto alumnus from 2016, as well as Roy Stansberry, a longtime Junto mentor who is also helping me build a new initiative to engage our mentors. Let's begin with Kathy. As you'll hear in our conversation, she's not new to entrepreneurship or leadership, having started her third company, which is now on its way to being the biggest one in her experience. That business is Red Caffeine, a growth consultancy that plugs into companies to develop, execute, and manage a people-plus-people plan that attracts and retains both clients and talent. They use a unique blend of strategy, branding, technology, and marketing to build organizations clients want to work with and employees want to work for. Check them out at redcaffeine.com, where you can also learn about and register for their upcoming conference called People Plus People. A number of us from Junto attended last year, and I was quite impressed by the quality of the talks and the presenters. Welcome, Kathy. I am really excited to have you on this episode of Flourishing Together. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. So we're going to start off by learning how you're feeling right now. This always gives me pause when we start to kind of hone in on our emotions. Uh, But I am feeling very excited. I always start at like the inner wheel and then move out when I'm thinking about my emotions. Kind of excited for two reasons. First, the business. We're just kind of kicking off the second half of the year. I'm really excited about some of the people moves that we've made this year. I'm feeling really good about our new folks and and where some of our existing team are finding their their zone at the company. And I think we are going to have a incredible second half of the year. And then on the personal front, I am close to my 20th wedding anniversary and planning a vacation to uh, Greece, but we're having a little romantic stop in Paris where we had our honeymoon. So I'm very excited as we're starting to see booking certain things for that trip, building a lot more anticipation for that adventure that I'm going to go on in a few months. How fun and congratulations. Thank you. I am feeling very stimulated. I had a great late morning conversation, lunchtime conversation, post-lunch conversation, and now I get to be with you. That's been my day as well. How good for you. We both had a similar uh, beginning. So yeah, very stimulated, a lot of energy flowing right now. I got to make sure I keep it at bay so this thing doesn't spin out of control here. (laughs) Okay, uh, let's start with your first recollection of leadership. Thank you for giving me that question in advance because it, it did really make me think, you know, when you're a little bit older and you have to think back to an earlier stage in your life, it does sort of take a little time to, to replay that movie uh, real. But for me, I don't know if it was exactly leadership that came to mind when I thought about this. I think it was more in the shape of volunteerism. I, I even as a young person, got involved in a many different activities 
activities, as you might imagine. I like to do lots of things and have my hands in a lot of different things. In joining those different communities, whether it was church or at school, I typically would raise my hand for some type of, I guess you would call it leadership activity. And it kind of served me well as I got into my first business because I wasn't exceptionally bold in terms of business development. And as a single mom and a solo entrepreneur, not being good at sales or, you know, really proactive about sales, being a person that joined groups and took a leadership role and then proved out my subject matter expertise also kind of served me well in generating actual business relationships. So you mentioned um, being a single mom in starting one of your businesses because Red Caffeine is your third business. Is that correct? It is. Yeah, your third company. You started it and have been growing it while happily married, as we heard you're celebrating your 20th coming soon, along with having having your children grow up and then having grandchildren. Yeah. <laughs> Gigi. I am not really loving the name grandma, but uh, they all call me Gigi. Call you, oh, that's cute. I love that. And I'm saying well, that in sounds, a positive It way. sounds French, but it's. I, I think it really actually means something else, but I like it. More me. It is more you. <laughs> So for me, that's always been an inspiring element of your background and your being, that you're a woman who started her first company how many years ago? Oh, gosh, I don't even like to count them, but I'd say it was like 27. So it's over 25 years, 28, 29 years ago. Right. So we're going into the late 80s or so at a time when very few women started businesses, especially at that age. Oh, my gosh. Women at that age starting companies. So that was very There was no women at any CEO table at those days. So- Red Caffeine is your third company. It's your biggest one. And you started it and have been growing it while being happily married with kids and grandkids. And to me, it's always been an inspiring story as someone who's been able to keep all of that together. So I'd love to hear from you what has helped you keep it all together. And if you were to give advice to your former self from 20 or 30 years ago, or for people who are currently going through this process of starting and growing companies at a similar stage of life, what advice you'd give to them? Sure. Well, thank you. I appreciate that compliment. And I'm happily remarried. So I just want to clarify that this is my second marriage. So kind of along the lines of you learn things from each of your business adventures. I learned something from being married once and and really doing it in a different way the second time. And so I really credit my husband a great deal for being such a great advocate in my early career, he really championed the idea of me being an entrepreneur, really supported me and encouraged me. He's also an entrepreneur. So that does, I think, play into why our marriage works so well, because I think he also you know, understood the dynamic of running and growing a business. He was a single parent as well. And so he understood the dynamic of having to prioritize your children at many stages in your life and, and that balance that's necessary between owning a business who's like a baby in itself and then you know having children and and that's a lot of priorities in front of your spouse and so i think that it's taken you know a lot of time to get really good at managing all those things and and having that chemistry and romance stay after 20 years but we work at it and and then we just like enjoy spending a lot of time together and have a lot of similar things that we enjoy doing together. But in terms of advice, I think that what I would say to myself is that it's okay that I can't 
do everything. I, I think that was one of the first things that really helped me sort of hone in on what I was good at, or I, I guess I would say like what I'm passionate about. And I kind of think about that from the home standpoint too, versus the work standpoint. So when you know I was a solopreneur and doing the accounting and all the different aspects, sales and delivery of the business, my passion was really in serving the client. So when I was able to bring in people, accounting was the first thing that I was able to kind of outsource and and pay somebody else to do. So, you know, getting really clear on what you're really, really good at and where you should spend your time the most and being courageous enough to have somebody else take on those things that you're less skillful at, I think is really important. And, And I think about that in the home as well. I mean, there's just certain things that I can't get to and I don't want my house to be messy. I mean, I want it to be clean. So I I just know that that is something I have to outsource. And so for me, that's the way I've been able to sort of balance all the needs that running a business or running a home require and and then still like maintaining my sanity. Thank you. So speaking of marriages and divorces, let's kind of go into the direction of a business divorce. Okay, um, sure. Which you've been very open about, right? And very public. And But I think it's such a great story. And I think you've been refreshingly open. From my experience, and you know, I've been around entrepreneurs for a long time. I've heard many of these stories, but I think in your case, you have found a lot of peace with what happened and have been comfortable sharing it, knowing that other people can learn from your experience. So talk about two or three specific experiences from that whole process of your business divorce, which you think could be valuable for those of us like myself who have co-founders and or business partners. It occurred to me when you asked that question how there wasn't a lot of information out there on what happens when you have a partnership fallout. And it felt like a dirty little secret. And I didn't share it with many people as I was going through the process, you know, based on recommendations from my attorney. But there was a few key people that were in my inner circle and they really, really mentored me through that process. Uh, you know, one thing that I would share is just sharing it and having somebody to discuss the different situations that come up during a a process like that. What I wish I would have known or thought about to sort of mitigate some of these problems because they come up in every business. We work with a lot of people and partnerships and and it's a, a rare thing that everybody is completely aligned when they start the business to five years in to 10 years in. I think what I would say is it's much like a marriage. You really do need, you know, and I didn't believe this at the time when I first started in this partnership, you do need to have values alignment. It was, I think, the key critical thing that ended our partnership, you know, really having those hard conversations about things that could potentially go wrong, whether it's financials or, you know, decisions on hiring, maybe hiring family members or things that are going to create some friction and being frank about, you know, how you view those types of things. Like, I, I think in marriage, if you're Catholic, you go through that pre-canon um, exercise. And I think there's a lot of validity in some type of partnership exercise that steps you through the what ifs of business. Because as we know, there's many ups and downs. So if you don't have a good core value alignment, I think that's where the breakage occurs. I think the other thing for me is around roles and responsibilities. So that is something I don't think stays the same from you know year run to year five, your business 
I would assume evolves in most cases. So being clear on who does what in the business, I think would be would have been really beneficial to establish a cadence for reviewing where we sat in the organization. And then the last thing, I know it sounds like a prenuptial agreement or what have you, but a, a really good, clear business partnership agreement that looks at what could potentially be a fallout or, or if somebody needed to exit for a variety of reasons and gives you some good strategies to exit out where it's fair to all parties. I think you don't typically enter into business with somebody and think you're going to end up in a divorce, much like marriage, but I think it's a business deal. So you should be thinking like a business person. As you were sharing your thoughts, I was reflecting because so much of it resonated with me. Fortunately, in my case, and, and you know, Catherine, my co-founder, it didn't result in a business divorce, but she's left the business operationally. And what we did when we first met and started talking about the idea of her coming on board as a co in life, we do that when we're what you might call like a courtship, which, you know, when you think about it, yes. uh, most of us date, have an engagement. And in other words, we have a period during which we're learning each other's values and making sure either it's a fit or it's not. And many people break up because the values aren't there before they get married. But in business, things tend to happen a little bit faster sometimes. You know, and, and interestingly enough, we did work together in sort of a co-working situation prior to forming the corporation. And I guess I find fault in the fact that I did see um, some early signs, especially when we first incorporated as partners and I chose to overlook them and they were major. I mean, they were some major things that I just, I, I wasn't savvy enough to look into in, in advance of joining somebody in business. And so I think due diligence, especially if you have existing entities and you're co-forming something, kind of knowing financials might be a good idea of like doing a little due diligence on some of that stuff. There was just a lot of learning in this process. As difficult as it was, I, I think I got so much out of it. I'm a different human. I'm a much better business runner. You know, like I got a major MBA in business during that, you know, that year and then beyond. So since you started Red Caffeine, and I know a little bit about this because you and I met before you started it, right. since the time you started it, succession has been on your mind. That even though you started it with a core team that was from your prior business, you have had that in your eyesight right? Looking forward to the idea of succession and something that you've worked really hard at. What have been some of the highs and lows for you in that process of thinking through succession, creating a succession plan, and then trying to execute on it? There hasn't been a tremendous amount of lows because I'm still in the planning process. But I think where it started was I was at a Small Giants event in 2013 as I was exiting one business and starting to incubate, thinking about starting a new business. I was exposed or uh, saw Ari Weinswig of Zingerman's and Zing Train, and he did a session on visioning, and it was a game changer for me. I had never really thought about business in the context of thinking where I wanted to end up and then writing a vision to get there, and it, it really changed the way I thought about everything. And we use visioning a lot in Red Caffeine, and then even in some of the work we do with clients because we think it's such a great tool to thinking about the outcome and then we're working a plan backwards from there. I was 48 when I was starting Red Caffeine and I had seen many, you know, we, I had a business divorce. I've seen many organizations. We work in a lot in manufacturing and, and I've seen a lot of leadership um, transition challenges. And I just 
didn't want that to be me. I knew it could be better. I'd seen examples of it. I Another small giants experience was at Emma, the email marketing company, and they've exited now, but that founder shared you know, how he was going about his exit strategy with us during a session. And it, and it was so lovely. I mean, the, the team was aware of what was going on and they were working towards a common goal. And it was like, why does it have to be a dirty little secret in a back room that nobody knows about? So I took a lot of, of that experience and hearing how they were approaching it. And then I really thought, you know, there's two potential outcomes. I'm going to sell or I'm going to ESOP. And I'm, I'm still exploring both. But the process has been just research. I think you and I initially had a conversation because as we, you know, I went from a few employees to over 20 employees, I got a little concerned about being the only person that could sign a check. There's always that unplanned exit. So I didn't want to leave my team in a situation nor my family in a situation that would not allow the business to continue on. So I looked in and did the right insurance placements around key man replacement and then money to the business and then money to my family so that my family wouldn't I always envision my kids coming in and like putting their feet on my desk and saying, you guys are all reporting to me now. And that was something I really wanted to mitigate. So having those conversations with my team, as well as my kids and my husband. And so I have it documented. This is what happens if something would happen that I'm not planning fully. I think I started with ESOP. I really did some due diligence on that process, you know, found out where I needed to be from a revenue standpoint and just some of the other options in ESOP. Talked to a lot of other owners that had ESOP. We're a great game of business player, and that's a very popular strategy for great game companies is the ESOP strategy. But I also this past year was approached by a private equity firm and decided to go through preliminary due diligence on that just to understand like, is my baby ugly or, you know, is my baby valuable? And what was enticing from a valuation standpoint about my company and what were they looking for if I would elect to be bought out. But I think at the end of the day, my strategy will be something that benefits everyone. I know financially what my number needs to be so that I will have the retirement I desire. And I think that you know, going through the bank process and finance process of understanding what I really wanted to get out was also an interesting exercise. I feel no matter what way it goes, it'll be transparent as as I, that's how I run the company. And it'll be something that, you know, there's a lot of winners and not just, not just me. I'm excited for that time to, to happen. Not be, uh, not because I have anything to, to gain from it, but just to watch the progress, you know, from one of the earlier years. Well, you know, I, then I have to go start Dogs and Dags. That's my like flotilla hot dog, Chicago hot dog stand in the Caribbean. Although I'm seeing a few of those creep up. So I'm like, I better move on that Dogs and Dags. <laughs> so on stage at your graduation from Junto's apprenticeship program, you said the following. We knew something had to change. But what I didn't recognize in entering the Junto program is how much I had to change. I didn't recognize how unemotionally intelligent I was until we had to go through the experience. So I'd like you to talk about the moments when you realized that, um, how you have changed over these last few years and the impact that you believe it's had at Red Caffeine and in your life. I really was joining Huntao for helping develop my young leadership team and, and recognize that even though people had great skill sets, that leadership development was, is very difficult 
period and did come at a much more difficult for a small business. So, but I think what happened to me was I really grew up in a command and control era of business. And that was, that's what I saw. You know, I, I don't have an MBA in business. I, I learned from other leaders. I learned from my clients and the behaviors I saw from successful leaders in those days was a much different business climate than, you know, what I believe is successful today. And so Uh, I think that was what became blatantly clear as I started to invest in learning more about emotional intelligence and the practices. For me, some of the most integral things that happened were around self-management and and kind of recognizing the things that would trigger some behaviors that I would regret. And I'm I'm a very direct person, uh, but I, I now know that you can be direct without being unkind. I think I've been able to cultivate some skills. I mean, I, I've drastically changed, you know, my morning prep. You know, I use journaling a lot so I can think about, you know, the potential conversations I'm going to have, you know, what I can do to prepare to be a better leader in those uh, in those situations, especially if I know it's going to be a challenging discussion. And, and so I think it's had incredible impact on my personal life as well as the communication style in the organization. We are very transparent and open, but like any company, struggle with conflict resolution and being candid. So, you know, just having other team members take the master classes. And and then, you know, for me, it's just seeing emotional intelligence show up in my teammates and learning from them on how they approach a conversation. We've got one person on our staff, Kayla, I think you, you met her at our conference and we call it being portilloed. She is like, the master of emotional intelligence. She just has just such a incredible communication style that gets her point across, but in 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 a really empowering way. And I I hope to be a Portillo specialist at some point. That's great. Yeah, man. When I met her last year, well, I, I met her prior to that, but last year was the first time I had a conversation with her. I was so impressed, so yes. impressed by her. Don't poach her. Yeah, I won't. I won't <laughs> poach her. That's one thing that I have vowed to do is never to poach any of the Junto Company's talent unless they leave. That's, That's true. That's story. Yeah. fair game. That's right. What are you learning about yourself right now in the moment here in mid-2019? I'm learning to be a little bit bold. I've made some moves this year that are a little bit more riskier than I ever have, but I trust my process. I really feel like I have a really strong understanding and and I've built a lot of business acumen just in in learning experiences in my own organization and watching the growth and development of other organizations and, and just grateful to companies that I shared some of the forum experiences that had, you know, raised capital. So hearing that Type of strategy. So I, I feel that this year I've made some calculated decisions around deepening my bench and bringing in a lot more experience to my leadership team. And I really believe that's a move that's going to have long-term ROI. I'm already starting to feel some of that. And it's only you know been 60, 90 days for some of these team members. I just feel confident. I, I really feel much more confident. And I'm risky, but I'm also smart. I'm not going to make a move that is unretrievable. I'm going to make moves. I'm going to measure my moves. And then I'm going to, you know, make some additional moves based on how some of the things are are transacting and working for us. We're going to finish with closing appreciations. I'll start. I appreciate your energy and your growth. 
both of those are qualified by this fact that we know that you're one of the more seasoned people who's been through Junto. We've already referred to it earlier, but each of those to me counts more given the stage of life and career you're at. Uh, most of the people I know at our stage who are running businesses have some degree of fatigue and their energy overall on average has dropped. I've never picked that up from you. <laughs> and if, if that's the case, you've hidden it very well. So please don't show it to me. No. And then secondly, almost, and probably more importantly, is your growth. Knowing that we, and I, and you know my story, I've experienced tremendous growth. I'd like to think the last 10 years to see others in my peer group who also have been doing that is so inspiring and motivating for me. And to hear some more from you here in this conversation about how much you've perceived your growth doubles down on that. Um, so I appreciate your growth and your energy. Well, thank you for that. I mean, I, I appreciate that too. It is interesting because you, as a leader, sometimes you rarely do get those types of compliments. And, and I was just given that a very similar compliment yesterday um, from one of my team members about my vision and where I'm taking things and progression that they've seen from me. And, and that that was really, really meant a lot to me. I mean, I'm with you. I, I have appreciated that you've created a forum for businesses that are beyond, you know, like startup and, and in the weeds. And you provided us mentorship, peer groups, you know, really the tribe. It's incredibly powerful. I, I've been such a, you know, great beneficiary of the tribe. I probably should leverage it even more than I do. Many times that I've called you and said, I need to talk to you. And you just, you make time for us and, and you always have, not advice always, but you always guide us in, in, in such big thinking. And I, some of the biggest things that I've done right have been directly resulting from my involvement in Junto. So, I mean, I wouldn't have made some of these hires, you know, that happened in one of my forum sessions that I really got clear on what I needed to do next to, to get to that next stage of growth. And it's been a, a really powerful experience. I'm glad I've been able to be on the journey with you and your entrepreneurial endeavor. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Our second guest on today's episode is Roy Stansberry a senior organizational leader who has deep experience with global companies, offshore outsourcing, and building cross-cultural teams. His global citizenship and international perspective was earned through a couple of decades working and living literally across the world, in Asia, Australia, Europe, India, Africa, and of course, North America. He's been a mentor for the Junto Institute for over four years, and in addition, has been helping me over the past year build a brand new initiative called the Mentor Circle to engage our dozens of mentors, both with our organization and our alumni companies. So for this segment, I'm really honored to have one of our mentors at Junto, Roy Stansberry, uh, who's been a mentor with us for the last three plus years. And one of the things that uh, has come up several times in the mentoring sessions that Roy has been a part of is organization structures. Even just uttering those words sometimes makes my skin crawl because it just screams of corporate America. But what's been really fascinating for me is that uh, this topic has come up time and time again with the companies that have been through Junto, all of whom are not corporate. They're all small entrepreneurial companies that are growing. Some are smaller, some are a little larger. But the point here is that an org structure actually matters for, for a small company. 
My first exposure to org structures in the entrepreneurial context was well over 20 years ago when I read a book called The E-Myth Revisited, which is uh, one of the classics for many entrepreneurs and, and small companies. And in that book, the author Michael Gerber argues that uh, for a company to be able to grow and scale, it requires the ability for the people who started it, who are known as the technicians, start becoming more of managers and leaders. And one of the things that he advocates for is that those founders, those leaders actually build an org structure or an org chart that reflects the org structure and that they fill in those areas in that structure and chart, even if they don't have other people who they've hired to fill the roles. And so back then, that's what's kind of seeded uh, my mind with the importance of this topic. So uh, really happy to have uh, you here with us, Roy, sharing your experiences and, and thoughts. Thank you, Raman. So let's uh, first start by having you introduce yourself and uh, tell the audience a little bit about your background. Yeah, my name, Roy Stansbury. I started out my early career in the not-for-profit world. I studied industrial engineering and then somehow got sucked into uh, doing community development work. And from that, gained an interest in the evolution of organization, if you may. I happened to look into some folks at the DuPont company, the U.S. chemical giant, that they were looking at putting in place some programs around organizational effectiveness. And I had the great opportunity spending eight years working on developmental organization and developmental management sort of processes. After that, joined some friends in a company called Canbay, ran different parts of that business. Uh, it was acquired by Capgemini in 2007, but throughout that process got exposure from what it meant to be a startup all the way through a mid-sized company to then becoming a large company and seeing the evolution of that. One of the reasons why I wanted Roy to address this topic is because through the many mentoring sessions that he's done with us, I have personally experienced his appreciation and his experience with the human side of business. So one of the things that uh, I'm doing with all of the guests that uh, we have on these episodes and segments, Roy, is um, asking them to recall their first leadership experience. What was that for you? Uh, it's difference between one I can recall and having a detailed recognition around and one that I can recall and I really remember the, the details of. I would say the first recollection of leadership role was Boy Scouts. Being kind of a troop leader sort of sort of role and recognizing that there were responsibilities. The first, I would say, real impactful in terms of direction in my life leadership role was I was in a seminar and it was a seminar called Leadership Effectiveness and New Strategies. I was going through a demonstration of a facilitated process for building strategy. And we got into a breakout group, and all of a sudden, I ended up with pen in hand and facilitating this smaller breakout group. And I realized that that was something that I wanted to, I wanted to pursue. And it wasn't so much that pen in hand, but it was I felt comfortable being able to channel conversations in a direction that allowed for building resolution and consensus and so forth. And I ended up playing that out for a number of years after that. That's interesting. Tell us 
a little bit about what you've learned over the years in building consensus and reaching resolution? That there is always a third force in play. That's one thing. So in other words, if, if you think about the general interaction is between kind of an activating and a restraining force and two different points of view or however you want to want to put it. But I learned in the process that there is always a third perspective or there's always a higher purpose. Building consensus is never about unanimity. It's never about everybody agrees to everything, but it is always about finding the higher purpose, not about least common denominator, but finding, you know, what is the larger purpose in the situation? How do you get people focused on that? It's kind of one of those things that you end up in the process channeling some pretty negative crap (laughs) and you know, finding a way to, you know, ask the right questions. And the questions are usually why? Tell me a bit more. What's behind that? You know, you're always trying to get the root cause in the process, or you're trying to get an understanding of the the fundamental issue at hand. And from that, then trying to look at, you know, what's the larger whole to be served. I've always believed that, you know, you're, you're not just after getting a good compromise. It isn't always about somebody has to give up something as much as is what's. So you you refer to higher purpose, which is a very practical way for a lot of companies might be their mission. But what are other examples of a third force? Because I find that to be a fascinating idea. Some of the things in basically facilitating a group you know, I've always believed that, you know, if you're going to work with a group of people, you have to start out with purpose of the session, the why you're doing it. What are the outcomes that you're looking for? It's not some predetermined product per se, but in other words, a basic operating framework. Keeping people focused on, and I'm trying to be practical with this as opposed to esoteric, but you know, keeping people focused on why we're here. What's the problem that we're trying to solve, not uh, what do you want to spend the, the day talking about or what offended you about what somebody else said sort of thing. If it's a customer issue, you know, staying focused on the customer issue and how we're addressing the customer issue, not focusing on how, you know, Bob or Sally or offend you and what they do at work every day. I I always think that at one level, when you're dealing with practically trying to resolve issues, you have to have some kind of predefined context in which you're operating. And without that, then you're just coming in and going, well, let's just talk and see where we get to. In other words, if there's ever a time where we have to build consensus with either a small group or a large group or reach a resolution on an important decision, reminding people of the reason that we're even in the room. And making sure that the people in the room have a real reason to be in the room. I mean, I, how many meetings have you been a part of that, you know, there are 20 people in the room and 15 of them wonder why they're there. And the other five aren't clear, but, you know, they at least have something to contribute. To me, it's very important. And do I do that 100% of the time? No. But it it is one of those things, I think, you know, when you're dealing with critical issues, you have to provide the context for why you're there, what you're trying to get out of it. And I probably even more importantly, at the end of the day, than those that it's not just a matter of an agenda. It's a matter of how are you going to conduct the meeting or the interaction to get to those things? You know, are you just going to have a discussion or, you know, are you going to ask people to do a little bit of their own thinking in advance, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Sounds like, and I can 
I feel very confident in, in concluding that you sat in and held thousands and thousands of meetings in your career. I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here. What is the one magical tactic that you used to help improve the quality of a meeting or produce an effective meeting? The one, the one thing that is always in the back of my mind is the phrase, I'm confused. You know, it, it's kind of like, treat me as though I'm stupid and explain why you're saying what you're saying. Instead of trying to paraphrase and direct, it's getting people to go, this isn't clear to me. Even if it is clear to me, a lot of times asking that question stops people and has them go, okay, well, you know, let me think about that in a different way. Then. Okay. Well, I'm now confused. <laughs> you said asking that question. Yeah. What's the question and who's asking it? It'd be a question I would be asking. Well, it's a question. It's a statement. It's I'm confused. Help, help me understand. I don't know how many times I've used that over the years. Generally, I've used it in, in facilitating. I've also used it in leadership positions. I've also used it as a member around the table. You're always looking for opportunity to interject and cause people to stop and think. And you're talking about using that as a meeting participant not just as a meeting leader. Yeah. And it sounds like it dovetails really nicely with what you were talking about with respect to the third force, because saying I'm confused to some degree, hopefully moves us back to the reason that we're there in the first place. It could be, I'm confused. What does this have to do with what we said, why we said we were here? It's kind of one of those things that you just find yourself going, I need to interject something here that is going to cause us to pause for a moment. The whole uh, concept of org structure, as I kind of opened this, this segment with, has always been a little bit raw and businessy to me. But I've learned over the years about how the human side of business not only affects a company's org structure, but that the inverse also is the case. That an org structure also drives everything from the company's culture to its values to its identity and DNA. It's for the, that reason primarily that Roy is here, not so much that he's necessarily designed a whole bunch of org structures or has experience with them, but that he has an appreciation for, of both the hard side of this topic, but then also the soft side. So let's just start a little bit with how you would define what an organization's structure is. I think every time that I've worked on org structure, it, it, I struggle struggle with that topic. But to me, it is the ability to provide a framework through which the organization can actually achieve its goals and objectives. And I think back to some of my experience in in terms of defining goals and objectives. And you know, you think about shareholders and you think about customers, but employees and community also come into the formation of those goals and objectives. And if the structure doesn't support and doesn't feed into supporting all those stakeholders, and I'm sure you could find more than that, but those four were the primary ones I've dealt with over the years. So one of the things that you have shared with me is that work structures are evolutionary, that they yeah. change over time, they should change over time. And even if we try to resist that, they will change over time in all likelihood. Talk a little bit more about that. You mentioned something that formed your early thinking around org structure. And I, I guess one of the things that I read early on, and I have to admit, I did not read the in, entire book. And it was a book by a, a gentleman taught in the London School of Business, a gentleman by the name of Ronnie Lessam. 
And the book was, I think it was a textbook that he used in the course that he was teaching called Developmental Management. And in that, he covered, I guess you'd say, a plethora of topics and ways to come at thinking about organization. But he talked about organization in terms of phases, that I think about it in terms of life phases. When I think about people and you know, you think about teenagers and you think about people going into middle age and as they become elders and how focus for people change. I think organizations go through something similar. He talked about the evolution of being from entrepreneurial to rational to developmental to transformational. And in that process, that an organization that a founder brought all of the energy and direction to moving to the point where an organization actually needed rules and regulations, structure to it, more formal structure, but then felt that the organization had to move beyond that. It had to be really moved to be more of a learning developmental organization. And what's interesting is as you share all of that, what comes to mind is the fact that both you and I effectively grew up in an era of hierarchical organizations yes. where the org chart typically started at the top with the CEO, the president, and then it just kind of waterfalled down based on direct reports. And it was very hierarchy driven, very title driven. And today we live in a world where that's very rare. We've seen flat org structures come about. We've seen circular organization structures emerge. There's this whole fuzzy thing called holacracy that companies have tried, mostly companies that have struggled with it. So the, the point here is, is that even this background of org structures and this idea of evolutionary still applies no matter what shape or form those uh, structures really take. I mentioned Canbay. Canbay is a company that uh, I spent over 20 years in. We found ourselves experimenting with all sorts of ways to organize. Our CEO, I don't think, could go more than 12 months without doing some sort of tweaking, changing. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that the organization was tweaking and changing. We were growing. We were scaling. We always looked at ourselves as a learning organization, people-based organization, a very open uh, organization, an organization which leadership was not at the top of the organization, but leadership was throughout the organization. We did leadership development at every level in the organization. So we expected that the organization chart did not drive leadership, but that people in the organization played leadership roles, regardless of whether they were day old in the company or 20 years in the company. Speaking of driving, you also enjoy talking about how org structures drive major decisions in companies and maybe even minor decisions. Share some more about that. Org structures can tend to be very internally focused, I guess is you know, the, what comes to mind when you bring that up. From my perspective, going back a number of years and some of my experience is that an org structure has to serve the needs of the customer, the client that it's meant to serve, if you may, I'm being a bit redundant with that. But I very early on ran into a framework, I guess you would say, that, that essentially said that your value chain had to be focused on the values that the customer defines. And in that process, the customer is defining essentially four things. They want price, they want quality, they want ease and use, they want uh, service. They don't, they don't necessarily want those always in equal amounts, but when they're making decisions, 
those are more of the criteria that they're trying to weigh up. Roy, you've got plenty of business experience and you know from that experience that there is no process, like a linear process to build a company. Some companies today begin with their vision, mission, values. They come up with a strategy and then they start executing that and then they realize they have to adapt accordingly along the way. And maybe at some point, the org structure thing comes up. Others start with something like an org structure and then they just go ahead and execute a plan, even if it's just in their head. And then along the way, they start to devise a strategic plan, an operating plan, and maybe vision, mission, values comes up. The point being that an org structure can both drive those other elements of the business, but also can be driven by those other elements. So, so share a little bit about, especially from your experiences, how that kind of unfolds or how that unfolded for you in a, in a couple of examples. You know, as you were talking, one of the things that popped through my head is something we discussed earlier, and that is org structure is not necessarily org chart. I've been around plenty of organizations that, you know, we start talking about having need a structure and somebody starts putting boxes on the wall and, you know, well, we're going to need this and we're going to need that. A week or so ago, I started pulling out some things that we had done when we acquired a, a company. And in the process of acquisition, there's all of the due diligence and, you know, all the things you do to take things apart and put them back together. But as we came together to build a structure of two very complementary companies, I was just so struck by the thought that went into this. And obviously, I was a part of it, but being reminded of it, the structure or the more names and boxes and how things were going to be organized was almost an afterthought, you know, in the sense that what really came up front was things like what are the overall objectives of this newly found organization? What's the rationale for those objectives? Why, you know, why are we choosing to go this direction? What's the essential character of what we're building? I mean, these are things that were spelled out, you know, obviously not reams of paper, but spelled out fairly elaborately on several different slides. Uh, you know, and behind the essential character was really fundamental values that we're building this newly merged entity on. We, we got into things like the operating platform, not so much the chart per se, but what were the various pieces and what responsibilities did they have? And got into uh, then how would financial accountability be managed? And, and this was very much, it wasn't a regional structure. It wasn't a departmental structure. It was a very intricate matrix structure. It, it wasn't really clear what all the roles, responsibilities, accountabilities would be, and those all had to be spelled out. Uh, you know, after that, then there was an org chart or an org structure that was uh, played out. But I was taken by the thought process that we went through to even get to the point of going, this is how we're going to be organized. It sounds like what you're getting at is that it's more about the process than it is about the outcome. Kind of like the way that we yeah. talk about strategic planning or business planning, Yeah. that the real value in either of those experiences or processes is all the conversations, the thinking, the brainstorming, the whiteboarding that occurs, as opposed to what the actual outcome is, the, the yeah. concrete plan. I go back to my continuous improvement days. Dabbled a little bit because continuous improvement and organizational effectiveness tended to cross paths a lot. And the basic wisdom 
and continuous improvement was always you started at the process level. Now, I know it's a little bit different than what you're talking about, you know, from process there. But in other words, you don't just come along and start putting boxes and trying to, you know, do things from the perspective of what what are the pieces. But you, you have to look at how work is done. What is the process of work? And from that, then, you know, you start looking how that is organized, how it's put into systems, and then building a a structure around that. For me, what's behind much of this is really understanding process and making sure that, you know, the planning is done properly up front and not just jumping into something because it's expedient or you need a structure quickly. So do you have any examples of companies that have made some serious mistakes with their org structures, uh, whether they're design mistakes, execution mistakes, pitfalls they've fallen into, any experiences you can share with things like that? I go back to, it wasn't early days, it was probably as we were approaching becoming a mid-sized company in the Canbay days, the decision that we needed a COO. As I kind of recall this, it wasn't a, you know, we really sat down and thought about the process and so forth, what that role would do. But, you know, we went out and found somebody that had all sorts of credentials, then brought them in as a COO. The thing that that did was Canbay was a very globally oriented organization in terms of the thought process. It, it wasn't that, you know, Canbay at that point was all over the world and, you know, serving, you know, so many different countries, but the very nature of the business was multi-site business. You know, bringing in this person made us very North American centric. And in the process of doing that, we moved from a, a very consensus-driven organization. Uh, and by consensus, it, it wasn't unanimity around everything. It was you know, always decisions based on what was best to a CEO that started operating from the perspective of, you know, I can make decisions and you will do what I say. Just the observation of that change and the fact that an organization that was very participatory, an organization which was very people-centric, being however many thousand miles it is between Chicago and Pune, India, directives didn't necessarily make it halfway around the world. It was kind of like, oh, somebody said something and we do nothing about it. To me, that was one of those things of, you know, just because you think you need you know, someone who has a more depth experience or that you need a certain role within the organization, you can't just plan it in and assume that person can figure out how that fits in with the organization culture and so forth of, of what's been formed. Okay, Roy, as we uh, wrap up here, what I'd like you to do is to close with a shared experience or a lesson learned from your time mentoring with Junto that you would like to share with all the founders and leaders of companies out there today? The one thing that occurred to me very early on, so go back three years, I made the assumption coming in that a lot of what I learned over the years was things people knew. I think I discovered the fact that there are experiences that I've had that other people haven't had. When the questions are asked, And, you know, there's always the two questions in every mentoring session. To assume that people have already thought about what's coming to your mind of shared experience is not necessarily the right thing. You should never assume that 
your shared experience and the things that you believe that are the answer to the questions that are being asked are things that people have already thought about. And it kind of goes down the path of, you know, there are no dumb or stupid answers sort of thing. But I've, I've been kind of struck, you know, to open my mouth and at the end of people are going, oh, I hadn't thought about that. You know, is that the way, you know, it's dealt with in other places? I think it really is your shared experiences are not necessarily completely unique, but your shared experiences are probably bringing a perspective that are other people haven't had. Thanks, Roy. Appreciate you joining us. Thank you, Robin. Roy and I recorded our piece before the first episode of Flourishing Together was published, and before I got into a routine with conducting these interviews. That's why we didn't have any closing appreciations, which I'm a little shameful about, so instead I'm going to share mine now. I appreciate Roy for his commitment. He has one of the best attendance records of all of our mentors in our seven-year history, and that commitment has been further demonstrated by a desire to be more and more involved with our organization. He's truly a part of our team, and I'm excited for what's ahead, because if it wasn't for his commitment, some of what we're working on wouldn't even exist. After I listened to my conversations with both Roy and Kathy Steele, I had a long list of notes I wanted to share my thoughts on. Candidly, I didn't know where to start or where to end, so instead, I'm going to focus on one key takeaway from each conversation. First, with Kathy. My biggest takeaway from her was the advice she'd give a younger version of herself who was about to get into a business partnership. She said she'd spend more time doing due diligence and acting more quickly on warning signs early on that the partnership is not what it may seem to be. In the interview, I drew the comparison to our personal relationships, and I think it's a very fair one to make. On average, personal relationships develop through a dating process, and if that goes well, a mutual commitment to one another, sometimes leading to a lifelong partnership like marriage. That engagement period takes some time, during which there's a lot of conversation about the couple's life ahead. And of course, many people talk about how, even with all that history, They don't really get to know someone until they are in fact married or committed to a lifelong partnership and fully engaged with the person on a day-to-day basis. In my experience, this courtship, or quote-unquote due diligence, doesn't happen as methodically with business partners or co-founders. Much of the time, people go into business with former co-workers and colleagues. Other times, they might meet through mutual introductions, and even other times, it's a little bit more random. But from Kathy's conversation, I'm going to start talking more about the power of building milestones in co-founder and partner relationships that are based on the possibility of these warning signs emerging. Here's some really interesting data. I went back and looked at the 31 companies that have graduated from our apprenticeship program. Of those 31, 25 have had co-founders or business partners, the remaining six just a sole founder. Of the 25 that have had co-founders or partners, 18 companies have either had a breakup slash divorce or are experiencing relationship issues right now between the co-founders or partners. That's a staggering number, staggering percentage. And while I don't know how it compares to the average, um, it's something that concerns me. Therefore, I'm going to start drawing more attention to this idea that partnerships and co-founder relationships, like personal relationships, have warning signs that we can take note of. I do know that there are people now who specialize in co-founder coaching and, dare I say, relationship therapy. But the only way that people can take advantage of services like those is to be aware of the potential for problems down the road. And so this whole idea of warning signs or signals, the partnership may not be what each of the people thought it could be, 
is something that I believe requires more honest and intellectually honest conversations earlier than might happen otherwise. My biggest takeaway from Roy's conversation was his idea about the third force and its reference to the why of a business meeting or conversation. Because it relates to the active and reactive forces he mentioned, which I think most people are going to understand, I love the idea that this has this different name, just the third force. Nothing flowery, nothing dramatic, just the fact that it is something different than the active and reactive forces. You know, almost on a daily basis, most of us have conversations where we disagree or have different viewpoints than our counterpart. And if those escalate, I love the idea of using this tactic of calling out how one of us is an active force, the other is the reactive force, and that we can effectively hit a reset by stating that there is a third force. And that is why we're even debating the topic in the first place. And while I doubt it's going to automatically solve disagreements or arguments, whether at home or at work, I think using this could help remove us from a potentially emotional and emotionally draining dialogue, enabling us to be more intellectually honest with the other person. I can't see a downside of using this tactic. I can only see it helping. Thank you to Roy for bringing that up. Thank you to Kathy for the advice she would give herself. And I'm excited to put both of these into use in my life and in my work. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the next episode. This episode was produced by Dante32.